Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Father, we come to you this morning and we want to say, first of all, Lord, that we're grateful for your love for us. God, we are so grateful that you loved us enough that you wanted to communicate to us that the scriptures were written as men were inspired by your Holy Spirit and they were given that we might have an intimate love relationship with you. And God, we ask that the word would go out and not return void. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would use me and that my words would not be my words, but your words. And that they would go out and accomplish the purpose for which you're sending them this morning. So have your way and Holy Spirit, open each and every heart here this morning that we might hear and obey. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been going through this book. I keep reminding us that the word revelation is apocalypsis. It means unveiling. It's primarily the unveiling of Jesus Christ, but it's also the unveiling of the things that are yet to come. Everyone has an interest in the future. We all are eager to know what is ahead. And Jesus understood that, and he knows our desires. And in his wisdom and in his love for the church, he has given us an insight into what the future holds. And that's really what the book of Revelation is about. It's about the unveiling of the future and the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of our God and our role in that kingdom. And in the chapters that we're looking at in the next few weeks, chapters 2 and 3, we're looking at seven churches. Seven churches that, uh, that are historic churches in Asia Minor, that's modern-day Turkey, Seven churches that many people believe represent seven periods of the church age. And also seven churches that I think uh, clearly represent pretty much any church that you find in the United States or anywhere abroad in the world. They're, they're, each church is going to, to some degree fit into these categories. But I also want to suggest that these seven churches represent the life of each individual believer as well. There's commendation and criticism for each of these churches. There are things in my life that God, I think, would commend me for, and I think there are things that he would correct me on as well. And I think probably for each one of us here, there are areas where we are doing and pleasing God in ways that are honoring to him. But there may be some things that God needs to correct. And I love that about the Lord, is that he doesn't leave me continuing on doing things that are displeasing to him. But he gently and lovingly corrects me and shows me the way back to the place of honoring him. And so these seven letters are seven love letters to the churches. And there's a pattern to them. And uh, just briefly explaining it to you, there's a greeting that most of these letters begin with. 
and then a title or description of the character and nature of Christ himself. And these, these characteristics are taken right out of chapter 1, the, the, the passages that we looked at last week about the Son of God and his descriptions. And in each of these seven letters, a, a small portion of that broader description is given to these individual churches. And then there's a commendation for what they're doing right. It's encouraging to know that the Lord sees what we're doing right and he has a, a word of encouragement for us. It's not, it's not just... Uh, I've, have you ever been around somebody that you, the only time you hear anything is criticism? Like maybe at work and you just get bad news all the time. It's very discouraging. But Jesus isn't like that. When he sees things that are honoring to him, he says, well done. And so he commends the church. But he also has a criticism. But it's not a, it's not a heavy rebuke as much as it is a correction that we might get back to the place that honors the Lord. And so he tells us exactly where we stand, where we're doing well, and where we need to make some adjustments. And then he gives a warning that we might uh, hear him and listen and repent, if necessary, from things that are dishonoring to him. And then finally he ends with a promise of the reward that's awaiting those who are faithful to the end. And so that's pretty much the pattern for the seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Now, just to give you a bit of a background on Ephesus, out of all the churches and all the nations and all the, the cities in that region, Ephesus was the crown jewel of the Roman Empire. It was the central market of the entire Middle East over there in, in, uh, in Asia Minor. It was the intersection of so many roads. In fact, many roads were known to end in Ephesus because that was a place that everybody was going to do trading or anything else. It was a place where uh, the, the seventh wonder of the ancient world was located, the temple of the goddess Diana. It was magnificent. It was huge. And people came to worship this goddess at this location. They had many civic monuments there. It had one of the largest populations in Asia Minor. And uh, when you consider all of these factors put together, it's no wonder that Paul made that area of ministry a major focus of his life. He spent three years there, longer than really any other place that he ever ministered, because from that strategic location, missionaries were sent out across uh, the, the, that whole Asia Minor area and beyond. And so it was a very uh, key strategic place. It was also a place where there was some resistance. It was, uh, if you remember from Acts 19, because the Bible promised if we follow him, there will be persecution, there was for Paul as well. And when Paul was preaching there, uh, many people were coming to Christ. Priscilla and Aquila were there as well, and they were faithfully teaching the Word of God, and there was just an explosion in that Roman sector of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It was really exploding all over Rome. And that really disrupted a lot of people's lives. And one person's life who it disrupted was a, was a silversmith named Demetrius. Anybody remember his story? He was a silversmith. He was the head of a whole uh, group of artisans that were making and manufacturing little gods, little deities uh, in, the, in the likeness of Diana and were selling these. It was their livelihood. Well, evidently, so many people were turning to Christ and repenting of sins and finding new life, lasting life and relationship with Jesus that people weren't buying these idols anymore. And it was really putting a crimp on their financial income. And so they had a riot that they started. They, uh, uh, they themselves began this riot to try to get rid of Paul and the disciples of Jesus. And uh, we know that, uh, that it didn't uh, succeed. Ephesus became one of the central points and one of the strongest churches in the New Testament. In fact, if you look at the book of Ephesians that Paul wrote uh, sometime later, this book uh, makes it evident to anyone who reads it that this was a very mature church. 
This was a church that, uh, that uh, really understood their doctrine. It was a church that was able to accept and receive the solid teaching of meat that Paul was giving. And so it was a very mature church. And we see in the commendation that Jesus gives this church the evidence of their maturity as well. And so Jesus begins with this church and he says to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. We've talked about some of these things last week and so I won't uh, spend too much uh, time on this. But the church or the seven stars that Jesus holds in his hands, we are told in chapter 120, we're given the interpretation of exactly what those stars are. They're angels that are watching over the churches. Now some people believe it might be a pastor or an elder that's overseeing that church that's held in the hand of God. But either way, the point is is that God is protecting his work. And it means that it's firmly in, his, in the grip of his right hand. That's a safe place to be when you're talking about uh, serving the Lord. And so the Lord has the leadership of the church, the angelic leadership as well as the human leadership in his hand, watching over them and giving them direction and guidance. And he holds them in his hands in a place of, of honor and protection. And he says that he's walking among these seven golden lampstands. And again, in chapter 1, verse 20, the interpretation of what, this lamp stands, what, what these lampstands are is given. It's the seven churches. And so, if you can visualize in the throne room of God, you have these seven uh, menorahs, these seven candlesticks that have seven branches. And among them, Jesus is walking. Now, in chapter 1, we're told that he's in the midst of these lampstands. But now we find him walking and strolling among these lampstands. And I, I don't know, I find this so encouraging to, to me as a Christian, as a brother in Christ and as a pastor, to know that wherever I am and whatever we're doing is that Jesus is not only in our midst, but he is walking among us. There's a wonderful passage in Leviticus talking about the blessings of God and the promises of God. And I believe this is a promise that holds true for today as well. It says, if we will honor God and live for his purposes and love him, he says, I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. So from the very beginning, God's desire and design is that he would be able to walk among us, fellowship with us, enjoy our, our company, our friendship. And he's offering that even today and we see in, the, in this book of Revelation as he's writing this letter to the church in Ephesus that he is still walking among the churches that he's examining them, that he's scrutinizing them, that he's wanting to bless, that he's wanting to protect, that he's wanting to honor, that he's wanting to, to build up and edify the church of God. And even today, he's here in our hearts, but also amidst us, walking around, wanting that your heart would respond to him and say yes to a deeper and closer relationship with him. These lampstands, as I mentioned last week, are, they have a function, and that's to give light. I mentioned last week how my wife loves candles. But the candle itself isn't light. It doesn't have light itself. But it can be a vessel of light. And in the same way, for the Christian, we are not light in and of ourselves, but as a vessel that's prepared and ready to let the light of Christ shine, Christ sets the believer's heart on fire and light emanates from the life of a believer. You don't have to work at it if you're in love with Jesus. It just happens. It's not something you need to generate. It's not something that you need to create or try to, try to build up in yourself, but it's something that God gives the believer. And Jesus says that the church is a lamp to the world, that we are a city set on a hill to give light 
to people who are in darkness, who don't know the wonder of Jesus and his love. And so Jesus says that he is walking amidst these lamps who are now reflecting his glory and his light in the world. And he goes on and he says, I know your deeds. In Psalm 139, David, in a very, very intimate psalm where he shares so much of himself with us as, as readers, he says to the Lord, he says, Oh Lord, you know everything about me. You know my thoughts when they're far away. You know even before my mouth speaks a word, you know what I'll say. And you see, he knows each of us intimately. He knows your beginnings. He knows what's happening in your life now. He knows things that you don't know about your life that you're going to be facing tomorrow or next year or 10 years from now or 20 years from now. He knows everything about you. Before I committed my life to Christ in in, uh, 77, that's 1977, I remember reading this passage. Somebody shared this with me and they said, Bob, don't you know that God knows everything about you? And I'm like, oh man, that's not good news. I didn't want God to know everything about me and I was trying to hide it not only from God but from other people And, and in my ignorance, even though I knew that I couldn't hide anything from God, I somehow believed that I could be hiding from Him and that, that He wouldn't know all of these things that I was doing and that it would be somehow hidden from His eyes. But the Bible says that everything that we do is laid bare before Him and that we will have to give an account for our behavior and our decisions and our lifestyles. Now, before I was a Christian, that kind of a word worried me and it made me anxious. It didn't comfort me. But as a Christian, this word comforts me. Because I realize that I've got a loving Father, a Savior who who gave up everything that I might have life. He's held nothing back to demonstrate and to communicate His love to me. And that same God says that I know everything about you, Bob. I know the good things and I know the bad things. I know your strengths and I know your weaknesses. I know areas that you're going to fail in the future. I know everything about you. And yet that same Father, that same God, says all through Scripture that He is totally committed to me, that He will see me to the very end, and that He loves me. And it's it's more than love, it's a passion. He can't, it's not enough, He wants more of my heart. And so He comes saying, I know everything about you, and yet He loves us anyway. That is the remarkable thing. Isn't that kind of what we're afraid of with people? We're afraid if people really knew us. That's why we're not as transparent as we might be. We're afraid. We've got this deep inner fear that if we really shared with people what we were like, what we've done, our history, all the ugliness, that people would be like, whoa, I I don't really want a friend like you. Isn't that kind of a deep fear that we have? Keeps us from relating to each other? But Jesus says in spite of that, in spite of his intimate knowledge of everything about you and everything about me, he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And while you were still sinners, I sent my son to die for you. So Jesus says that he knows the deeds of the Ephesian church, but he also knows everything about us and all of our deeds. And now he begins to commend the church. He says, I know your hard work. This word hard work, it means labor to the point of weariness. These aren't people that were kind of doing part-time Christian lifestyle. These were people that were completely sold out for the kingdom of God. And they were working very hard at it. And we have a model of that with Paul. Paul says that, you know, I am so determined because of the compelling love of Christ to communicate this message that I am using every bit of energy and strength that I have that God gives me to help other men and women come to know Christ. And God honors that. And God says, I commend that in you, the Ephesian church. 
And Jesus communicates to us as well through Paul and Colossians, and he says for us that whatever we do, we're to work at it with all of our heart. Not as, as if we're serving men, but serving the Lord. So in your job, in your family, wherever you are, you're not serving the people around you. They might be benefactors of your service, but your service is unto God. And so God commends them and says, you are really working hard. You're doing an excellent job. You're pouring yourself out. Jesus also commends them because they, they were persevering in their ministry. It means cheerful endurance and patient continuance. I found in my own life that, um, not just in the Christian life, but watching people in business, having been in business myself in the past, I'm, I'm, I'm really convinced that it's not about talent or ability or about giftings. Those things really help. But I have seen a lot of people that were very gifted and very talented that never really accomplished very much in life. And they always seem to be on the edge of something great but never succeeding. And I found that so much of that has to do with whether a person is able to persevere through difficulties and hardships. And if you have experienced success at any level in life, you had to have persevered because life rarely hands things to people without the necessary uh, characteristic of perseverance. And even in the Christian life, uh, the writer of Hebrews says that, that we are to be a people who persevere, that uh, we are to throw off everything that so easily entangles us, the sin that, that can grab us by the ankles and, and that we let kind of enwrap our ankles and keep us from running a good race. And, and Jesus says, persevere and finish the race that's been set before you. So throw off everything. It's the picture of a runner that, uh, you know, can you imagine them? We have some backpackers here and we're glad you're here. They've been camping and enjoying the island. And can you imagine uh, our friends trying to run a race with somebody that's got, you know, just some, some fast Nikes on and a little pair of shorts and a little jersey and they're trying to run with a 50-pound backpack or a 100-pound backpack and run a race against that person? It's not possible. They would lose. And so Jesus says, anything that would hinder us in our walk with Christ from finishing and completing the race that God has given us, cast it off. Get rid of it so that you can run the race and finish and finish well. And the, and the Ephesian church was running the race well. Jesus also commended them because they were not willing to tolerate wicked men. I want to take a minute to talk about this because it's so important for us as a church to understand how we need to be applying this in our, in our own lives. In fact, when I was up at Cocatus last week uh, praying, I was praying through this passage and, and, I, and I did a, a fairly extensive study looking at the life of Christ and how he was dealing with wicked people during his earthly ministry. And one of the things that I found over and over and over is that people who were unbelievers, who were in sin, just felt completely at ease around Jesus. I never see Jesus throwing anyone out or saying, get away from me, you adulterer or you cheater, or you liar. I never see him saying anything like that. In fact, to the contrary, we find the religious community all up in arms because Jesus is spending so much of his time with these outcasts, with these people that aren't good enough for the church, with these people that have not met the standard of man. And so clearly, when Jesus is talking and, and, and sharing this message with the church, he's not talking about the unbelieving community. My role as a, as a brother in Christ and your role as a brother or sister in Christ is to love those that don't know Jesus. The mistake that we make is, is making a, a non-Christian feel uncomfortable. Somebody that hasn't met Jesus, you don't impose a standard of, of biblical standards on an unbeliever because they're not, they're not constrained by that standard. 
And so Jesus, in his own ministry, has modeled how we as a church should be relating to someone who doesn't yet know the Lord. The Bible says clearly we are not to judge a person like that. We're to love a person like that. We're to give ourselves away freely to a person like that. We're to serve a person like that. We're to be just like we would with anyone in the body of Christ, loving and encouraging and hopefully having an opportunity to share the tremendous difference that Jesus can make in a person's life. But the Bible does say clearly that we are to not be tolerant of wicked people within the church. Paul has written uh, something very clear on this in in 1 Corinthians, and I'll read it to you in a moment, but let me give you a description of what was happening first. In the church in Corinth, there was a young man who was having sexual relations with his mother. And the whole church knew about it. And rather than the church saying, oh my gosh, this is wrong, don't you realize this is against the the, the word of God and inappropriate? Instead, the church, in its its, uh, glory and grace and the freedom that they had in Christ, were saying, isn't this incredible that we are so free of any constraint, so free of any rules, that even a young man can go to bed with his mother. We are just, we are the the freest and most loving church in all of the world. (laughs) At least in all of Corinth. But Paul says, this is wrong. This is wrong. Let me read what he says. I have written you, in regards to this issue, in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, evidently, the, the church had been confused because in his first letter, he wrote not to, be sexual, not to be involved with these people, and they thought, oh, not to be involved with people in the world. And so he clarifies it. He says, I'm not meaning at all the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy, or swindlers, or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, or a sister, and is sexually immoral, or greedy, an idolater, or a slander, or a drunkard, or a swindler. And he says, with such a man do not even eat. And so the Christian's perspective and approach to the unbelieving world is the love of Christ. To communicate it, to to model it, to demonstrate it, to let the light of Christ shine. But for the church, if there is adultery going on in the church and it becomes known within the church, if it comes to my attention or the attention of a leader, if there is dishonesty in business practices, with a brother or sister within our church. If there is greed or someone is a, is a slanderer, goes around telling untruths about people in the church or, a, or a, a constant gossip within the church, the Bible says that we are not to tolerate that. Now, this is a real problem because the church has become so tolerant of these kind of things that church discipline is almost non-existent within the church today. It should be a natural part of the discipling ministry of the church. A pastor does the church and the kingdom of God no favors when he holds back from confronting lovingly sin within the church. Now, just so that you know, I'm not running around trying to turn over every stone in everybody's life in the church. That's not my objective. My objective as a pastor is to keep encouraging you toward Christ. But if I become aware at some point, and this has happened uh, in the past and it's happened in this church, when I become aware of something that is habitual something that's not repented of, something that's damaging others within the church, something that's damaging that brother or sister, in love, I'll go to that person. And I'll say, brother, you know, this is harming your walk with God. You can't be enjoying your relationship with Christ and living in sin at the same time. And I know your heart. I know what you want. I know you want Christ. I know you want to be enjoying the fullness of that relationship. 
But that's not possible if you're continuing on in sin. And so the church is to be a place where there's purity. You see, the world sees the church now and, and unfortunately oftentimes sees a corrupted church. They see a church where there's no discipline, where, they're, where uh, this guy's sleeping with that guy's wife and this guy's you know, done bad to this guy in a business deal some months back and, and this woman gossips about that woman and there's all this division. And all I can say is thank you, thank you, Jesus, that he's working in this church in such a way that those things aren't happening. I'm not saying we're a perfect church, but I don't hear of these things very often. But the pastor's responsibility and even those within the church when there is immorality or ongoing sin, in love with the objective of reconciling that brother or sister back to Christ, not exposing anyone or embarrassing anyone, but in love helping that person get back on track, we're to go to that person and share with them. I have to say I've had someone do this to me several times over the years of being a Christian. When I was a young Christian, there were some things that I was doing that were not right. They were ungodly. And a pastor became aware of it and, uh, and he came to me and he sat me down and he said, Bob, I've become aware of what's happening in your life. And I want you to know I'm not coming to humiliate you or embarrass you, but to give you life, to set you free, to help you, to encourage you to do what's right. And I was embarrassed, but I was extremely thankful. And to this day, I, when I see this, this guy, uh, it's actually Danny Lehman. I thank him for helping me to get back on the right path. And so Jesus, in his description of the church and accommodation, says... I'm appreciative of the fact that you don't tolerate wickedness among you. That you don't let it go on, but you confront it and bring that person into a restored relationship with me, with Jesus, and then with, uh, with the church. He goes on and he says that this church is commended because they've tested these people who have been self-proclaimed apostles and yet were not, and they found them to be false. This church was so well taught and so literate when it came to scripture that they were able to identify when a prophet or an apostle was not truly from God. We had a gentleman uh, that attended our church off and on uh, in the first year I was here on the island. And a wonderful guy, just loved the Lord, but he, was, he considered himself a prophet of God. And the only problem with his prophecies is that they never came true. But he put a lot of fear in a lot of people's heart. He, was gonna, he predicted a, a hurricane was going to hit the island. Some of you may have seen it on Hawiki because he, he was on air predicting this and saying God had spoken to him and clearly a hurricane was going to hit on such and such a date. The time and the hour was named. And so he said, but I am going to go out as God's prophet and God's apostle and I'm going to stand on the south shore where this hurricane will hit and I'm going to hold back this hurricane by my prayers. <laughs> well, I guess he's either a prophet and he really did hold back or he was a false prophet. Now the reason I know he was a false prophet is he prophesied many other things that didn't come to pass either. But the point is, is that the church in Ephesus was well versed enough in scripture that not only did they have that sense that many of us have that something's not right with this teaching or something's not quite right with this particular view. It doesn't really line up with scripture. But even more than that, this church was able to identify what was wrong and expose it. And so Jesus commends them even Paul said, regarding this particular church in Ephesus, in Acts 20, that savage wolves will come after me and come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. And Paul says, so be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. And so this church was able to discern. They were a discerning church. And they knew when they were hearing something that wasn't right. 
Jesus goes on and commends them and says in uh, verse 3 that they persevered and endured hardships. The Bible says that anyone that wants to live a godly life is going to endure some persecution. If you put yourself out on the line and you share the gospel with people, you're going to have people that embrace it and you're going to have people that reject it. So Jesus says, I commend you for not remaining silent. You know, some of us, all that somebody has to do is kind of roll their eyes when we talk about Jesus. And it's like, we, whoa, I don't want to, I don't want to be rejected. You know, I don't, want, I don't want to have people think I'm a Bible-believing freak. And yet Jesus says to this church, I'm commending you that you haven't backed down, but you continue to share the love of Christ even in the midst of resistance and persecution. And Jesus says, in addition, that you have not grown weary. One of my favorite verses in the Bible that at times, especially when as a pastor, I, I get discouraged or I'm not quite sure what God wants me to do. And in Galatians 6, 9, Paul says, Let us not become weary in doing good, for in due time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let's do good to all people, especially to those who are the family of believers. And so there's this command and encouragement within Scripture that we're not to become weary. We're not to give up. You see, Jesus is coming soon. Now, I don't know how soon it's going to be. I know I'm not going to live more than probably another 40 years at at the best. I could be much shorter than that. So I've got 40 years to live my life and Jesus is telling me, don't be weary, Bob. Keep steady. Stay the course. Keep bringing glory to me. Keep pointing men and women to me that they might have life. And he's, of course, saying the same thing to all of us. And then in verse 6, I'm kind of taking this out of order, but in verse 6, Jesus commends them as well that they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now, we don't really know much historically about this group of people. Some people believe that, uh, that this group, this sect within the church, was uh, a group that uh, had wed the Roman traditions and the Roman religions and the Roman worship of Diana with Christianity. And so they really had a mixture of Christianity, faith in Christ alone, with this teaching of, uh, of uh, Diana. And it was abhorrent to God. Now, others believe that that the, the Nicolaitans were a group of people who actually began to set up a, a priesthood, a mediation of sort between people and God. So they became a, a priest, very much like a Catholic priest, where if you want forgiveness, you've got to go to the priest. You know, if you want a blessing, you've got to go to the priest. If you want to receive anything of, of value from God, you've got to go through a mediator, the priest. And you see, Jesus says he hates that because he died to break down that mediation. He died so that we could have direct access to the Father, no need for a mediator any longer. And so if a man or a woman or anyone, for that matter, a church, sets up somehow some mediation between ourselves and God, God says he abhors that. And so Jesus says that they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans and he agreed with that and was supportive of that. You know, there are not very many things that the Bible says that we can hate. You know, the Bible doesn't say anything about giving us permission to hate anybody. Some of us have struggled with bitterness over hurts. And Jesus says, you don't have permission to hate. Even someone who's done you wrong. In fact, he says, bless them. What we can hate are the things that God hates. He hates sin. He hates corruption. He hates things that harm his creation. And so those things we can hate. But people are never on that list. And so whether a person is in direct rebellion against God or no matter what their condition is, no matter what their situation is, the Bible says that we are to love that person and love one another. Now I'm thinking to myself, okay, this is a church that worked hard. They were probably very well organized. 
They never quit on a task or gave up on anything. They were uncompromising in their biblical and ethical and moral standards. They were well taught, very literate when it came to the scriptures. They persevered under tremendous stress and persecution. And they hated the things that God hated. And I'm thinking to myself, what more can a church do? What else is there? (laughs) This is a pretty comprehensive list of of a church that's just doing everything in their strength to follow the Lord. Yet in spite of this, and all of their strengths, and all of their commendations from Jesus, there's one thing that he has against them. And we find that in verse 4. He says, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. This word forsaken means to abandon or let go of. It means that at some point, the Ephesian church in the midst, and it's hard to believe, this was still in the first century. This wasn't, you know, a thousand years later and people just kind of lost vision and lost sight of Christ. This was in the lifetime of many of these people who some of, probably some of whom still knew Jesus or, or was aware of him and saw his ministry. At the least, they were in the first generation following the death and resurrection of Christ. And yet somehow, they had forsaken their first love. Now, sometimes I've heard people teach on this and they say, you know, the title of the sermon, Lost Love. Or, Have You Lost Your First Love? And that's really not accurate because... It's not lost. It's not like uh, sometimes in the back of the car I'm looking for you know, something behind the seat and I'm digging out crackers and wrappers and all kinds of... It's not like I lost God. It's not like he's been misplaced and I'm, and I'm searching for him. That's not what the Bible is teaching. What Jesus says is that you have left me. You have walked away and abandoned the intimacy of a love relationship with me. I think Jesus is clearly referring first to himself is that this love with him we've left this agape love this passion for Jesus but it also includes each other you know I I found that unless I'm in love with Jesus I don't have the capacity to love other people I can give only so long and then I'm just kind of dry and burned out but as as I'm in a love relationship with Jesus he just keeps filling me and filling me and I've got more to give away and more to give away and at the end of the day I think I've got nothing left and and then he fills me again and I'm able to give again the next day and he gives me everything I need in order to be able to love others But Jesus says that if we've abandoned that love with him, we've also abandoned our love for each other. So here we have a church in Ephesus that was doing all the right things. I mean, from any pastor's viewpoint, this would be a church that would be like, wow, I wish I had a church like that. I wish that all my people were so willing and willing to work and willing to labor. But Jesus says that they're doing all the right things, but they've lost sight of this intimacy that I died for. I, you know, Jesus didn't die that you could serve on, at, a, at a church or as an usher. That's not why Jesus came. He didn't come for you to turn the, the knobs on the soundboard or to, uh, to witness for him. That's not why he came. He came because he loves you. And he wants an intimate relationship with you. And the problem is, there's something in me, and maybe you can relate to this, but there's something in me that seems to, left by myself, drift away from that love and I drift toward doing stuff for God. And that can easily happen in a church. And actually in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about this and he warns us as a church and he says, you know, you can have all gifts and all knowledge. You can, you can be such a servant. You can just look at somebody and just kind of go like that and they come to Christ and accept Jesus. You know, you might be an eloquent speaker. You might be somebody who has a gift of hospitality and, oh, just people come to Christ just watching your heart of service. 
But Jesus says, unless it's motivated and grounded and, and flowing out of love, it's in vain. It's worthless before God. That's God's word on this, not mine. He says he doesn't find it acceptable. There are a lot of times I remember as a younger Christian when I would do things that I have to be honest and confess that sometimes I would be motivated because I wanted to get a pat on the back. Or I'd want to be seen or I'd want to be, you know, I'd want to be appreciated. And sometimes that still can happen for the body of Christ where we're doing things not for God, but we kind of, all of a sudden, you know, we're, we're, oh, now we're praying. Okay, people, okay, I'm, okay, I'm into it now. Or I'm, I'm uh, somehow serving or loving somebody differently or speaking to somebody differently because all of a sudden someone's around. And Jesus says he doesn't find that acceptable. But we need to be living uh, with Jesus as our first love all the time. One of the things that's helped me kind of determine my relationship with the Lord, I asked myself some questions about my love relationship with Him. Some questions I asked myself to know as kind of a barometer of my, my spiritual love life with the Lord is what am I talking about? What am I thinking about when I have free time? What am I giving myself to? And where are my financial resources being spent? And, and, and when I'm with other people, what is the basis of our conversation? And it doesn't mean it has to be Jesus all the time, but I remember when I was in love with my wife, and we were in that romance stage. Oh, that was wonderful. I couldn't be with her enough. And when I wasn't with her, I was on the phone with her. And when I wasn't on the phone with her, I was thinking about her. And, and if you were around me and you just asked me one little question about my wife or about how things were going, it was like, oh, I just would tell you everything about my, well, she wasn't my wife at that time, but my fiancé and how wonderful she was and how beautiful she was and all the characteristics that I really appreciated about her. And so, when I think about that love relationship with my wife, I think that that's what Jesus is wanting from me in my relationship with Him. He wants a total infatuation, you know? It's not about coming to church. It's not about singing or praying. It's not about serving. It's about Christ. Now, as a result of my love for my wife, there are all kinds of things that I wanted to do for her. And that came out of that love. I didn't do those works and then try to make myself love my wife. I loved her, and out of that love came a desire to serve and to love her. And so as a barometer for myself, I think, what am I really focusing in on? Do I go a whole day without thinking about Jesus? Do I go days without spending time in the Word? Do I go weeks without communicating His great love to others? And if that's the case in my life, that's a barometer saying, I need to get back to that first love Relationship, that, that romance with the Lord. So Jesus tells us how to do that in verse 5. He says, Remember the height from which you have fallen. There's something very valuable about remembering. In Jeremiah 2, the writer says that of God regarding his people, I remember the devotion of your youth, how you as a bride loved me and followed me through the desert. And so Jesus is interested in that. You know, so many people think that the Christian life is about a bunch of rules and they're wrong. They think it's about uh, believing all the right things and they're wrong. It's not about any of those things. It's about the creator of the world communicating to his creation his desire to have a reconciled, eternal relationship with each of us individually. And he's made it possible through his son, Jesus Christ. But there's something in me that I don't know what it is, but I just tend to kind of move away from that. It's the same in my relationship with my wife. Sometimes I find myself with Becky not treating her like I did in the first days of our romance. You know, I, don't, I wasn't opening the door. In fact, you know, some months back or a year ago or whatever, I said, honey, I want to start opening the door for you again. 
And so, you know, I'd go and I'd try to open the door and half the time I'd be, you know, there are two things that happened. One is that, is that she'd already be out the door because I trained her over time that I was never going to open the door for her and so she just kind of took care of herself. And then it was hard because when I was trying to, to love her again in that way, very simple thing, is that uh, oftentimes I'd, I'd walk along and I'd be out on my way to Walmart and I'd look back and there's no one there and she's in the car saying, you know, to the door, you forgot, you know, because I'd asked her to do that to help retrain me to be a loving husband. I've got a list of ten things that a husband can do to love their wife. I taught on this during the book of Ephesians. I've got this taped over my computer. Why? Because there's something in me that forgets how important it is to love my wife. It's very easy for us as husbands to love our wives and romance our wives in in our dating days and even shortly thereafter and then kind of settle into business as usual and our wife will come to us and say, Honey, I I kind of miss our conversations like we used to have. And I miss the couch time. And I miss just kind of uh, being alone with you. And we say, well, honey, what are, you, what are you talking about? You know, you got a roof over your head. you got money in your pocket. You can buy anything you want. Our kids are healthy. What do you want from me? Right? Some of you can relate. But you see, a wife is not interested in all those things. It's not that those things are bad. She appreciates them. But what a wife wants is romance. What a wife wants is intimacy. What a wife wants is love. And in the same way, God commends all of these good things that that this church is doing. But he says, if you're doing it and it's not grounded and emanating from love, then I find it unacceptable. And so, men, I encourage you on a side note here, love your wives again. Remember what you were like when you were first dating your wife and love her in that same fashion. And the amazing thing is, is that when you love a person that way, all of a sudden, your love for that person begins to grow. It's an amazing thing. I've had guys come in for counseling with their wives and they're ready to divorce and the, and the guy says, uh, well, I don't love my wife anymore. And I say, well, and he says, what can I do? And I said, well, love your wife. And he says, no, you don't understand. I don't love my wife. And I say, well, then what you need to do is to love your wife. We go around and around until I finally explain that you're looking for an emotion. If you want the emotion, then love your wife in practical deeds and action. And when you do that, then your emotions begin to parallel and mirror that act of love. So if we want a deeper love relationship in our relationships with our spouses, the thing to do is to love your spouse. And if we want a deeper love relationship in our relationship with Jesus, then what we need to do is do those things that demonstrate love to God. Walk with Him. Obey Him. Spend time with Him. Nurture that relationship. Get back to regular time in the Word and regular fellowship with Him. And Jesus goes on and He says, you need to repent That just means to change our thinking. It means that if we've got some things that are damaging the relationship, that we leave them behind. He goes on and he says, in addition, I want you to go back and do the things that you did at first. And the word that I have there is just repeat. Repeat the things that you did at the beginning. Now Jesus warns the church that if they don't respond, there is a consequence. Now, one of the things that's marvelous about God is that he gives us a choice. I I love that about him. I it confuses me sometimes because if I were God I would have made everybody believe in me that way everybody would have been saved but God in his wisdom gave us the choice because he wants a love relationship he doesn't want automatons he doesn't want people who are forced to serve him he wants men and women who come to him of their own free volitional will and choose to make him their savior and so he says if you choose to do that if you hear these words then I'll bless you but if we fail to respond there are consequences And he says what this consequence is, is that he will remove our lampstand from its place. I remember when I was in in Massachusetts, 
went to seminary there and just a few blocks from the entrance to the seminary there was this beautiful New England church. You know, the white and the picket fence and the steeple, the cross. I mean, it was just gorgeous. Stained glass. It probably seated about maybe 200 people or so. And I, I just drive by this and the first time I was just shocked at what I saw because on the front lawn of this beautiful little church was a for sale sign. And I thought to myself, how sad. At one time, this church was probably very fruitful. They were probably preaching the gospel. But somewhere along the way, they lost their way. They forsook Christ. And eventually, that congregation, and it happens all over New England, we've seen all kinds of churches like that in New England and the Northeast, that gradually just dwindle down. There are just a few older people there, and finally those people die off, and there's not any money or any resources to continue the ministry, and they close their doors. Now, a lot of people say about these kinds of things, well, there's, it's the urban movement. You know, we're, we're moving out of the cities into the suburbs. That's why it happened. Or people just aren't as responsive as they used to be. Or, you know, the young people just don't have an interest in God like they used to, which are all false. The problem, I can tell you, where all of this began was that somewhere, this church continued doing ministry, but forsook their first love and they lost their vision and you can only keep working in ministry so long without an overflowing love for Christ before you dry up and burn out and so Jesus says that he will remove his presence and you know I believe there are many churches unfortunately who fail to preach the, 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 the truth anymore they don't teach the Bible anymore and they have very nice sermons about you know uh, social uh, policies and about politics and everything else but they don't preach Christ and him crucified and the result is, is that long ago the power and the presence of Christ has departed and they are so organized and so smooth and so together and so persevering that they don't even notice that he's gone. You know, I think uh, having prayed about all this, this is my greatest concern for our fellowship. There's a tremendous love for God in our church and a love for one another that is actually becoming a mark of our church where people from the outside are talking to me about the love in our fellowship. That's a beautiful thing. And God is helping us to become more organized and more fruitful and more and more ministry doors are opening up for us. The fellowship is growing. My greatest concern is that in the process that all of these things would begin to play, replace that love relationship with Jesus. And Jesus has a warning for us. is Don't forsake that romantic first love with Jesus. And if you have, He's calling you back today. Now, Jesus ends with a reward of blessing. And he says that anyone who perseveres and hears what I have to say, that he will give the right to eat of the tree of life. I have just a moment to talk about this. But Jesus, when he's talking about this right to the tree of life, we have to go back all the way to the book of Genesis, chapter 2. In that book, we have a record of God's creation and God's garden of Eden. And there were many fruit trees, all kinds of things that Adam and Eve could eat of. But there were two trees that they were not to eat of. One is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and one was the tree of life. And we know the story. They ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And at that point, they, there was a, a rift in their relationship with God. There was a brokenness. And by God's mercy, he set a guard, a cherubim, in front of the Garden of Eden to protect that tree of life. Why? Because he knew that if, that, if Adam and Eve had eaten of that tree of life, they would live forever in a broken state in their relationship with God, never to be reconciled. And so God, in his, in his wisdom, closed that off, and Adam and Eve had to leave the garden. 
And ever since, God has been reaching back, reaching, initiating. This is the major difference between Christianity and every other world religion. In Christianity, God is reaching toward man. In every other world religion, man is trying to reach to God. But God has reached to man through Christ. And he says, if you want to eat of the tree of life that is in Revelation, you must first come to the tree of reconciliation, which is the cross of Christ. You see, without the cross, there can be no relationship with God. Without the cross, there's no forgiveness of sins. Without the cross, there's no resurrection. And without the cross, there's no eternal life. And so if we as a people under the Ephesian church want to experience eternal life and that intimate relationship with Jesus even now, then the Bible says we must come first to the foot of, cross, of the cross, to the feet of Jesus who died and shed his blood to pay for our sin. And if we're willing to do that, the Bible says that we can inherit and take part in eating of that tree of life. And so I just want to close by reviewing the Ephesian church, a hard-working church, a well-taught church, an organized church, a persevering church. They were doing all the right things. But they had, over time, drifted away from that life-giving, intimate love relationship with the Lord. And I just want to ask you, how's your love relationship with the Lord today? Are you really in love with Him? Are you really overflowing with... You can't wait to talk about Him. You can't wait to spend time in the Word. You can't wait to just have time alone so that you can pray and communicate with Him. If that's not the case in your life, then maybe it's a time to, to remember what the relationship with Jesus was like in the beginning. And maybe to repent of some things that may be blocking the way. And then finally to go back and repeat the things that you did at first so that your love relationship with God is the very core of everything that you do and all your ministry and all that you do that God will commend emanates from that so that it will be found acceptable and pleasing in His sight. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning and God, the most amazing thing to me about all of the things that we've talked about today is not what this church did or didn't do. What amazes me, Lord, is that You want to love us that you even desire this kind of intimacy with us, that you long for it and that you are aiming at it and that you are wooing us to it. And so, Father, we want to say yes to you. We want to say, I can't believe that you want to be with me. I can't believe that you want to love me. I can't believe that you want to show yourself to me and to all of us here. But your word says it's true and therefore we accept it. And we ask, Holy Spirit, in all of our waywardness and our, our propensity to walk away and to forsake you, God, would you draw us back here today? Draw us back so gently as you do to that intimacy and that love relationship that we remember so well in the early days of following Jesus Christ. And help us, Holy Spirit, not to leave that place again, but to cultivate and to invest in those things that bring life and love in our walk with you and with one another. In Jesus' name. Amen.